Greetings and salutations. My name is Tyler Ellenick, and this is Raven Drool, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s catwalk. Now, before I introduce the guest for today's episode, I'd like to take a few minutes to, or moments rather, to tell you how you can help the podcast. Now, the first couple ways cost you nothing. Simply go to iTunes if you're on iTunes or Apple Podcasts and write a few sentences saying some nice things. Give us a five-star review, and that will help us climb up the podcast charts. And the second way is if you're on social media, you know, give us a follow, give us a retweet, a share once in a while, a like. And the third way you can help us is if uh, you financially want to help the podcast. If so, go to patreon.com slash where for as little as $2, you can help pay for some of the hidden fees and costs associated with producing the podcast a couple times a month. And if you had a few extra bucks to spare, you can uh, donate uh, 5 or $10 a month, at which you unlock some bonus content, gives you advance notice who the guest is, you get a stickers maybe, depending on what level you go, and also you get to ask a question or questions, depending on your level, of that upcoming guest for an exclusive Patreon Q&A. Now enough shilling, onto the episode. So this is part one of a chat I had with Trevor Hurst of Vancouver, British Columbia's Econoline Crush. So I was interested to, uh, in research for the podcast, I was interested to find out that you were in living in Seattle when you answered an ad in a paper, which ended up being uh, Econoline Crush. Now I'm curious, what led you to Seattle and what year did you get there? So I had... I was in a band in Winnipeg called One Big Union, and it was um, kind of a Americana rootsy thing. Um, and we moved to Vancouver in 90, 91, and it kind of, the band just sort of imploded. And then, but we had got some attention from a label called Atco, which was a division of Atlantic. And this management team out of Seattle Kim and Diana Harris, who had Harris Music Group, it was called, and they managed uh, a band called Queens Queensryche at the time. Hmm. And so we started working with them, and it was really uh, as when 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 one big union broke up, I went down to Seattle because obviously at that time it was insane how the music scene was just exploding there, and. Um, so I answered a bunch of ads and, and and was trying to like living in my management's house and trying to get a band going. And then there was an ad from Vancouver in the paper. And I was like, wow, this is wild. And all the influences and everything just lined up. It was like all the things that I was interested in. So I, you know, answered the ad and, and ended up going back up to Vancouver to audition and, and come up with some stuff for Tom Ferris and the, um, Thing, project that he was working on and Tom like if people Tom Ferris was one of the founding members of this band called Mauve and Mauve was the reason that they started Network Network Records a lot of people think it was Skinny Puppy but it was Mauve that came first and then Skinny Puppy and so Mauve was the impetus for starting uh, for Terry McBride to start Network Records and Tom was part of that with Mauve and then Mauve had kind of broken up by this point and so he had a ton of music and he needed somebody to arrange it and sing on it. And that's how that came about. Now, you're the first person I've talked to, I think, ever maybe that was in Seattle in 1990s. You got to give me some inside uh, info, man. Is it just like the movie Singles or was it just like Alice in Chains one night and then Pearl Jam the next? And It was really, it was interesting because it was a small scene, right? Like the city itself is a big city, but the music scene is small. 
I can remember like I have so many interesting things about Seattle. Like it's such a blur. <laughs> so Kim and Diana Harris, they had a store and their son had a store called Easy Street Records. Oh wow, really? So Easy Street's still there. Uh the one that that uh, Matt Vaughn, their son owns. And uh he's really close with the guys in Pearl Jam and a lot of bands and they do a lot of really creative stuff at that. Our our store was in Kirkland. And um so right at that time too it was really interesting like before the 90s um chart people wrote in i guess what their sales were and that's how the charts were made like defined you know on billboard top 200 or whatever sales charts then this thing soundscan came in and uh, we were one of the only stores uh i think our store in kirkland was the only store in seattle that had or one of two stores that had a soundscan counter you know what i mean like so yeah. we sold something so like when we started excuse me when i started working at that store it was really crazy because the the billboard top 10 or whatever at that time was like i don't know let's say Loverboy, you know was up there and uh sting and all these people and then soundscan comes in and all of a sudden sting and you know Loverboy are all down in the low 40s or whatever <laughs> At number one is this guy named Garth Brooks, and everybody's going, what? And then, you know, in the top 40, there was this band called Nine Inch Nails nobody had heard of. And it was wild that it was just, you know, what what was really happening in the music industry and what was sort of being shown on Billboard was so, uh, you know, very much uh, dissimilar. There was no really correlation. They were just making it up. And uh, so things got really interesting in the music business really fast. And then simultaneously... um, the people that were making live music uh, all of a sudden were getting noticed. And it was, it was like, I remember going to this one rehearsal space and um, in that space, there was three rooms playing. There was, uh, I think it was Tad or uh, no grunt truck. Grunt truck was in one, one room. Uh, Soundgarden was in the other and Allison chain was in the other. And like, they were playing. And, and, you know, you could walk and listen by the door and you would see like uh, I'd see Kurt around on the on Broadway on the hill. Um, you would see people all the time. And, and it was wild to you every night of the week, like every night of the week, live music would would be playing. There'd be like six or seven bands playing. And there was A&R guys everywhere. Like huh. it just was a frenzy for a bit. And it was amazing. Like. And there was this, this competing, like there's a lot of different, like everybody thinks it was just grunge, but there was actually a humongous industrial thing going on. There was kind of this other sort of alternative stuff going on that wasn't just grunge. And there was a lot of, like like I said, there's a lot of A&R guys and a lot of people like flooding Seattle. And I, I put an ad in just to see what I could come up with in terms of just if I wanted to put together some players. So I started with, you know, put an ad in, I think it's called the stranger it's the name of their paper there i can't remember but um the um response i would get would be like you know a guitar player from atlanta a guitar player from boston a guitar <laughs> player from you know they were from all over even some people from europe had come because the scene was so it didn't matter what day of the week it was you could see bands playing live and and you could you know if you went anywhere kind of where musicians went you would always run into people that were in bands and there was so many at the time too like if you think back you know you have your candle box and uh 
sunny day real estate the posies mud honey tad grunt truck you know alice chain sound garden there's so many yeah so many mm-hmm. so many and great clubs but but harsh clubs like in canada you know we have a i don't know what it is we, if we have some sort of laws that maintain but like the offer <laughs> was a notorious club in seattle and the guy's washroom was two pieces of two by four were nailed over top of the drywall. And then at the top two by four, they're probably three feet apart or something was nailed this piece of tin, which was folded down and there was a hole punched in it and connected to a pipe that I assume went to the sewer drain. And you just <laughs> peed on that. That was the, that was the bathroom, you know, like hardcore, just hardcore. But there was the off ramp, uh, rock candy, Vogue, I think, was another one. Yeah, there was also this something cafe that that Peter Buck from the REM got Crocodile Cafe. Yeah, he 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 was part owner. Like, like there was many times where I, I remember going to see the Posies there, and uh, and like Peter Buck, you'd meet him in the hallway, you know, because huh. his girlfriend or whoever he knew was running that place. Yeah, it was, and like I watched Tad had a record release one time. And uh, I remember I watched Tad's record release and one of the bands playing was Grunt Truck, but I sat with Jim Rose Circus Sideshow, who also happened <laughs> to live there at that time, you know? So it was really, uh, it was a really crazy scene and really fun. And and there was sort of also too, these, like there was a sort of an anti-establishment movement too. Like a lot of bands would go up and the A&R guys would come and they tune their guitar for like, you know, five minutes just to be dicks, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. So it was really funny. I mean, yeah, it was an insane, it was an insane and intense scene at the time, like just overwhelming. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Cause I've always wondered what it would have been like to be on the inside of that, you know, cause I just read about it from far away. Well, it, and, and it does, it's, you know, it's, it, I think it gets sort of like, you know, it, it, things become mythical because of people, but it really just was like the same thing was going on in Vancouver at the time. I mean, and in Canada as a whole, where live music was changing, there was opportunities for different sounds and people were getting into it. And yeah, there was a sense of, especially between Vancouver and, and uh, Seattle, the two cities, like Phoenix underground was another club we played a lot. And, and there was a lot of bands going back and forth between Seattle and, and Vancouver and playing shows and like early in their careers, bands like the chili peppers, you know, played Vancouver a lot uh, before they were very super famous or whatever. And so it was, uh, yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of love for music and a lot, we really didn't realize, you know, when at the time <laughs> that, that that would maybe end someday, we thought this would just <laughs> carry on forever. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's get back to that ad you answered. Do you remember, um, auditioning for, for, uh, Tom and then what, uh, songs you sang? Well, it was interesting because I don't know that I, I can't remember if I auditioned or, per se or like if you know in vancouver there's this the broadway skytrain station on commercial and if you walk up commercial towards go north on commercial there's a small bridge that you cross right before that bridge there's a street and there's about four heritage houses and we were the third heritage like tom was living in the main floor of this heritage house about the third one in from commercial upstairs was billy Castle 
if you don't know who that is, it's his family, the Kalsels. I think I'm saying that, pronouncing that right. That was uh, the impetus or the, the 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 idea behind the Brady Bunch. No, Partridge Family. Sorry, huh. Partridge Family. And so he had a singing family band, and he was kind of the he was a Danny Partridge. So he was wow. the, the yeah. So he lived upstairs. So it was really wild anyway and he had a big cadillac so i parked up front so i went into this house and um tom just basically i think i sang a few things too and he's like liked what i kind of ideas i came up with but he had these songs you know these these keyboardy uh very much like early conline crush like uh the stuff i wrote with tom was like tdm wicked cruel world um stuff like that and it was all like 12 minute 20 minute songs like it was insane <laughs> and so i i had to try and convince him that you know we had to get these things down to like at least five minutes or something but <laughs> the first few shows we had nine nine minute you know like we had nine minute versions of songs wow. we'd have like three minutes of down it would just go on and on but you know people dug it, it was cool <laughs> Now, um, I always wondered, uh, TDM, was that uh, a nod to Terry David Mulligan in any way? Well, it was actually, uh, he thought so, and so I never, ever <laughs> wanted to correct, you know, because Terry, I like Terry, and he's funny, and so I was like, oh yeah, it's all about you, Terry, don't worry. <laughs> but it actually stood for, what it stood for was Trevor's death metal.
the day too, like, uh, uh, what was it? We used the Kurzweil 3000. It was a sampler. So what we would do is get the guys to play guitar chords in, and we would sample these guitar chords. So if you listen to TDM, it's almost obvious that I just, I was sitting there one day with Tom and he was like, you know, what should we work on now? And I was like, Hey man, do you have those samples from the other day? And he put them up and I, I just played it like, just hit the key. It would just go, you know, da 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 da. So if I hit the key, I just go da 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 da. And then like, then the one, you know, half step down, da 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 da. And I just, yeah, that was the start of TDM. Wow. And so we just, and we built everything around, you know, those kinds of samples, and we used really right when you look at it now, like oh my gosh, it was so primitive. Like our first shows we would run uh, a sequence, but we, there was no sequencer that could handle what we wanted to do. So we recorded it all to a stereo VHS tape. And so the left and the right audio was uh, what we've said to the front of house and played to. Huh. And then the click was on the, the video channel, the TV channel, and huh. that sent that to the drummer. Wow. So really nutty. But then, if that VHS tape ever stretched a little, you know, it would get a little pitchy. Really <laughs> <laughs> vanilla situation waiting to happen, man. <laughs> it was nuts. It was nuts. So, how long um, before you guys had label interest? I mean, how many songs that you had? How many shows that you played before people started to take notice and wanted to put this music out for you guys? Well, even the the way the band got named, uh, we had probably finished, I bet, not even eight songs, maybe, maybe, huh. yeah, eight songs. And we had mixed a couple and we had given them to a local friend and radio guy uh, named David Hawks. And David's still in Vancouver and he's just opened up, uh, I think it's called the Hollywood Theater. It's a brand new live venue in uh, Vancouver. But at the time, David was working, and and this was also was really fortunate for us. Was it coincided with there was a station that started called Coast Ten Forty, and it was an AM station. And then I think it got an FM license just before it folded. But they played local music and local bands only. And uh, then when I think they got the AM thing, they got or thing i think they played alternative music and local bands but they never they said they never played the same song twice in 24 hour period yada 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 so we got spins on there and a lot of support and i guess we had the six songs we got a couple spins on that station and hawks david hawks put us on his live night at what was called 86th street or plaza of nations at the time so we had about 2,000 people at our very first show no oh, wow yeah, and it, well, they weren't there for us, but they were there for David Hawks's DJ night or whatever. And and we opened the night by playing our set, and we instantly had this huge following. So we, you know, we owe a lot to him uh, in Vancouver for for breaking it. And and we sent the stuff away. So before we could even name the band, even uh, we didn't even know what to call it. We had we were going to send some stuff to this label from New York called East West that was interested. And because I'll never forget, the courier guy shows up at the door. We're all sitting there and we're, we're writing on the CD that we're going to send off. Um, so the names of the songs and what's the name of the band and the guy's like, Hey man, I got to get going here. 
and uh, and and we didn't have a name, and we were running through all these names, and somebody said, you know, Tom wanted to call it Crush, and I was like, but oh my God, Tom, like it's so there'll be so many bands called Crush something. <laughs> In the world, you know, like I, I just, I don't think that's that's a good one. It kind of sounds like a girls thing, and I don't know. And I was thinking, what, what about something more machine-like? And you know, and we, I said, might be cars or something. I said, what about Cadillac Black? And everybody laughed, and <laughs> and then it was silent, right? And and Tom goes, I think we should go with the Crush, and everybody's like, ah, and everybody's so quiet. And I said, you know, when I was a kid, I listened to all my music in my dad's van. It was an Econoline van, huh. and somebody said Econoline Crush. Huh. And, no, and nobody said anything. Like it was silent <laughs> a second. And the, and the courier guy's like, come on, man. So I wrote a Conline crush on the CD and I go, hey, we can always change it later. <laughs> and that was it. So then when, when I told that story to the American, we got signed to EMI later, you know, and we could go to that. But when I got, when we ended up getting an American deal with Restless Records, I told them that story and they were like, no. Like, what do you mean? No. And they go, that's, that's not good enough. I go, what do you mean it's not good enough? That's what happened. And so they wrote this thing. If you ever look online and some guy writes this thing, it's like the drug that causes optimism from a French novel. <laughs> and they just totally made it up. Awesome. And for years we had to run with that. And then I was like, start telling the real story again. <laughs> well, and it was so, you know, because that's one of the things, like if you ever, I'm sure when you talk to other bands and they say, you know, what do you call this? How did you come up with your name or whatever? It's a hard thing to name your band, it seems. Like maybe mm-hmm. other bands, don't have that but man we were like struggling (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome do you remember the first song you guys completed that would end up on purge or uh affliction later i think it was either cruel world or wicked really i think so wicked is 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 my my go-to jam and has been for a long time could you have any uh background into writing it or uh recording it well i mean it was um it was we were we were all kind of in a like like it was such a you know going back to again remember Seattle and all the mm-hmm. things so we were all trying to figure out okay how how do we do this how do we get so I could just remember that we we wanted to have this sort of anthem and at the time I and the other guys we were all like going through so much stuff personally like you know, people around us, family, friends, relationships, everybody thought we were bananas. Like, what are you doing? This music business thing is insane. It looks like it's even dumber now with all these, <laughs> you know, these guys from Seattle and blah, blah, blah. And so it was very, uh, so the song Wicked was just like the way that a couple of the relationships had ended. I was commenting, I thought at the time on that, but then, it's really interesting, too, because I don't know if you remember in the 90s as well, they started to do these songwriter things or storytellers, they called them. And one of the first ones was Ray, uh, is it Davies? Ray Davies of the Kinks? Right, yeah. And I went and saw that at the Vogue Theater or wherever in Vancouver at the Orpheum. And after at the after party, got to talk to him a bit. Hmm. But he talks about his early songs for the Kinks. And he said, I, I used to think I, I wrote them about my brother because he's an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I was thinking, yeah, I wrote I, I wrote a couple songs like Wicked about like my ex-girlfriend because she was a, you know, a piece of work. <laughs> and then as he's talking about it with me, he said, you know, you realize that your subconscious is actually like 
talking sometimes when you write and sometimes it's not totally your consciousness and he goes after a lot of time i realized that these songs that i had written were not about my brother but were in fact about me and then i started thinking about wicked and we had just finished this canadian tour we'd gone all the way out to you know canadian music week and all the way back and we were playing in vancouver at the cruel elephant and i was thinking that night i remember thinking just before we went on going back to this whole thing with Davies and, and what what he was talking about I was like man I think cruel world's kind of about me <laughs> and, and so it's a really interesting song because over time it's taken on a different meaning but it's uh it's just that yeah like that song I, it still connects with with my with me personally just because of the sort of the dichotomy of the meaning and also just the feeling of you know it is meant to capture that powerlessness of being kind of caught in a relationship where you're just waiting for the next foot to drop, you know, or uh, something to happen before it just blows up and, uh, and that fear. And it can also, you know, kind of encapsulate what it's like to be a little kid and be, and, and, you know, have an abusive caregiver, you know, and just waiting in silence, uh, wondering what's going to happen next. And so it's a, it's a it's a heavy song in a, in a way but it's really uh, like it does i love the way it it riffs and it and it has such a such a great live appeal you know
so that would um you know sending those demos off and that would result in you guys putting out the ep purge then so then what happened was well well this is the craziest thing too like in my career when when we started one big union got to vancouver i was uh going through the newspaper uh one day and i flipped it open and there was a half page article about a, a new up and coming producer from the prairies named dale penner huh. and uh i looked at it and and said he was born and raised in Plum Cooley, Manitoba. And I was like, well, how bad can this guy be? I mean, Plum Cooley, he must be sort of cool. And he made it all the way out here. So I, f- I phoned him up and we hired him to do the uh, one big union recording. And so we went into Mushroom Studios and we recorded an EP for this band, One Big Union. Then that band imploded, started a Conline Crush. And I thought, well, I liked working with Dale. I told the guys about him and they said, sure. So we actually went in and re- did it all and paid for it all. And like all these labels were kind of chasing us, but instead of like sort of waiting for them to, to give us the loot, we went in and made purge on our own. And as we were completing it, EMI flew out and offered us a deal. And I went for dinner with Tim Tremblay and, and um, Jody Mitchell in, in Victoria. And they basically talked me into signing with them worldwide. And so then it came out on EMI. And then once, um, you guys went to your full length. I'm curious. Only one track from Purge made the made the cut to Affliction, Cruel World. Yeah. I was curious why that song and why none of the others. I don't know, honestly. <laughs> I think uh, I think that Cruel World just it, it's still to today is still one of uh, my favorite songs as well uh, because it deals sort of with mental health and the medications and, and all that stuff and it just seemed uh yeah i don't know why it just it was such a cool riff and a cool vibe that we just decided to carry on with it and see when we started making we we had um we had a different producer that started on affliction with us we had this grand plan that we were going to go into a our where we rehearsed and kind of do it semi off the floor and uh and make this record kind of a, in a unique way in this rehearsal sp- space in North Vancouver. We got probably two weeks into it. And unfortunately, when you start a record, a lot of the expense is right at the front, like where you're flying up the producer, flying up his gear, um, booking the time. getting. So we'd spent a bit of money and we were both, I don't know, like I said, a week or so into it. And I wasn't getting the vibe off this producer. And so we sent him home and we, we hired uh, Reese Fulber to finish the record. Well, EMI flies out and goes, hey, that's not how this works when we pay for it. <laughs> 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 and I was like, oh, OK, uh, well, we uh, fired that guy and we're getting Reese to produce the record. Yeah, we noticed. Um, <laughs> OK, we'll let you get away with it this time, but don't ever do that again. And I was like, oh, OK. Yeah. So anyway, that's how that like. Uh, so then we re- we sort of started and we went back to, you know, East Van and doing some stuff in his father's studio and then f- finished it in, uh, you know, different locations. And, and Greg really ended up mixing it. And yeah, and the rest is history. But it was it was really a learning curve for sure for us at the beginning. And for people who uh, don't know who Reese Fulber is, he was in Frontline Assembly and Delirium. And how big of a influence was he i mean on the record then now having him at the helm 
did he help uh, elevate the songs or what was it about him that took those songs to the next level? Well, I think because of his skills in programming, like none of us were at that great at doing any kind of like programming. And the biggest thing for me was that at the time, you know, what seems to be ubiquitous now, which is programming and rock music kind of being merged, nobody was doing that electronica and rock. And so we had the rock side of it down and the metal side of it down, but the programming side was lacking. And he brought that, you know, amazing skill to the table and he also was a friend he's a longtime friend of of uh he went to school with rob morford who was in the band at the time hmm. and, and we had been doing demos with reese's dad ray fulbert who was in a band uh, with art bergman back in the day no, wow. yeah so there was a lot of like muso connection there so it just felt natural and and fun and cool to have him do it and uh he kind of also he was like you know because of the successes that he'd had with um frontline assembly where you know they were really really doing a lot of experimental stuff he wasn't afraid to take chances production wise whereas the other guys that we had the other guy we'd worked with was very conservative we wanted things to be as you know um innovative as possible now um you mentioned adding programming to uh you know, a heavy rock, hard rock, metal sound. Um, was there any kind of Canadian bands that had that electronic feel that really inspired you to kind of merge that with your rock music? Um, Images in Vogue, um, hmm. which which were the founders, I guess, initially uh, that ended up becoming um, uh, the uh, and Darkroom as well. Uh, Images in Vogue and Darkroom, they they were bands from the eighties, late eighties, going into the nineties that that were doing sort of this keyboard rock. And I was like, I always thought that eighties music was just amazing, but it didn't have any oomph. Like right when you wanted it to kick in, it right. just kind of yeah. like. And like I, I don't know if you remember the Images in Vogue, but like I think the, at the point of a knife, or no, the, or was that? Strange Advance as well. That was Strange Advance as well. So there was like three or four bands. Strange Advance was another band that that was the song we run by Strange Advance. It's a great song. Kill, but we- 
those bands kind of influenced us and and uh we really yeah we we just felt that they just didn't have that like they were really like um like cellophane and i wanted it to be more um you know gritty now with um reese bringing in this kind of programming to the songs how did that affect the live performance how were you able to translate what was now on the record to your live shows well, okay, so then then we kind of learned our technology from him as well because he, he was telling us the ways that 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 it was being performed, uh, how Frontline Assembly could do it. So we started going with a digital audio tape, and then a a, a multi-track digital audio tape. So we were using this machine called the Tascam eighty eight or DA eighty eight, and and uh, we would put the tracks on that stereo left and right with it with a click or then we ended up getting you know where we would have that space stripped out where it was on like i think the thing was eight tracks so there'd be a, a click and then uh seven tracks of um audio so we'd, we'd have you know whatever programming on one whatever samples on another uh percussion on another you know all that kind of stuff and uh and then just we didn't have sort of the high-end kind of um in-ear monitoring that hadn't really happened yet and the wedges and the systems and the clubs couldn't handle it so what we did was we we just basically brought a small pa and ran the programming like a sidewash across the stage with small with the, with the small with the small pa and then had the rock stuff blasting out the front <laughs> so it was kind of nutty like if you were up front you got just hammered with the programming and, <laughs> and and if you're in the back you could kind of hear more of the rock you know but we just cranked the programming and just and basically jammed to it and what it was 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 amazing was like when ziggy ziggy it wasn't very long after we started that ziggy became part of the band and when he got involved he was a pure rolling stones punk rock in it uh you know rock and roller loved the tempo changes and moving around and so he was not thinking that he would like playing to this machine but he realized that the freedom it gave you because you have one like the machine the sequence is the one guy in the band that holds it together <laughs> <laughs> and everybody can jam to it so there's a there there's a little bit of wiggle room and when and when a Conline crush has been out on the road for a little while, you know, or we've been rehearsing and we're super tight, there is so much space between the notes, and you can just feel a push and a pull, and it becomes really musical. And a lot of people back in the day used to just roll their eyes at us and like this kind of music will never last. This is stupid. This isn't even musical. Blah blah blah. Like we get a lot of grief when we roll into these traditional rock clubs. But it was amazing because, like, and a great example, Channel One in Regina. Rolled, <laughs> rolled into Channel One. The guys that owned that club, they loved the Sky Diggers, man. You couldn't get, like, if they, they could get, <laughs> if they could get Sky Digger sweat in a can, they would drink that all day. They just loved it. Loved the Sky Diggers. So we were the antithesis of the Sky Diggers. So they didn't want us on. So we got booked there and the guy's like, ah, I saw your sound check. Listen, man, you can go on at midnight. I'm like, at midnight? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, and play for 30 minutes. That's it. And wow. I'll pay. And then he said, like, I'll pay you not to play. <laughs> oh, no. And I was like, holy, are we that bad? And he just looked, <laughs> and he just looked at me like, like, do you need me to answer that? So wow. I thought, wow man so anyway we get on the stage midnight places rammed 
all these people came to see us. Um, I think TDM was on Much Music at the time. And we unleashed the beast. I told the guys, I said, this guy, this guy thinks we, we suck. So just play your show. And then I guess we got tomorrow night off. Well, we went bananas. Show went nuts. And uh, after the set, knock on the door. It's the owner of the club. He says, can I have a word, Trevor? I'm like, yeah, sure. Yeah, what I said earlier about not playing tomorrow night. Um, do you think you could play? <laughs> 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 I was like, yeah, but I think we should get some dinner or something. <laughs> but i mean you know you you gave me some heart the guy gave me so much you know grief with that earlier comment that i need to you know get something out of him that's but, right, it, that's but right. we developed a really good relationship uh uh with that club and ended up playing there a lot more and it was great but yeah we just were his cup of tea and i get that i mean i was in a club when i was in a cover band first starting in music um I got a phone call one afternoon to rush down to the night moves at this big giant club in Winnipeg because we had to set up because the band that was supposed to play sucked and they were getting kicked out. And I was like, what? So we show up and there's just this yelling, screaming match going on. And I was like, what in the hell is happening in here? And uh, turns out it was the tragically hip. Wow. Punted from the gig. Huh. And, uh, you know, the rest is history and i'm sure the, the guy that runs that bar probably is enjoying his job selling fram air filters <laughs> when you were doing those when you were touring um that record in in the per gp for that matter uh were you going out there by yourself across canada or were you uh teaming up with another band either opening or are they opening for you we actually on affliction on purge we did some of our own touring uh like just us headlining and and really slugging it out and then right around that time um the cancer to the cigarette tours started you know the, oh yeah right remember all that stuff <laughs> yeah I <did>. so um <laughs> we did an amazing run across coast i think maybe we went to quebec we didn't get out to the maritimes i don't think but it was sons of freedom was the headliner huh. we were the middle band and then the opening band was Grim Skunk. Oh, no way. And I became friends with the guys in Grim Skunk. So it was really cool because, you know, there was a funny thing. That they got to Winnipeg and they were like, Trevor, we are going to separate from the tour. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I laughed so hard at Franz. I was like, dude, don't. Come on, man. Just a few more shows. He goes, but we're huge in Montreal. <laughs> We are huge. And you guys, like these guys here, they don't understand. And I said, I know they don't understand, but like you got to teach them. And this is one of those things. Like, I mean, look, I know that you're a big band in Montreal. So we'll just, when we get there, show them. So when we got there, yeah, it was, uh, you know, we were the first band. They were the second band. Then then the, the, the Sons of Freedom. And man, watching Sons of Freedom every night too, like, oh, one of my favorite Canadian bands and just, because it's it's so unique. It's such a unique band, a unique sound. They were such great players. Tight. Oh, just tight. Like, huh. Gump, Gump is probably one of the best alternative records ever put out in Canada, in my opinion. Like, just a great record, front to back. What's your uh, go-to Sons of Freedom song? Uh, Dead Dog on the Highway. <laughs>
ended up playing we loved him so much playing bass that he ended up playing bass on uh the devil you know 
Oh, no way. Yeah, Don Bins was a bass player on The Devil You Know. He came down and recorded with us and Sylvia down there. Huh. And it, huh. Yeah, and then he left the band because when we mixed it, it was so insanely programmed. He was like, well, what the hell? I can barely hear what I did. (laughs) 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 Oh yeah, man. It was crazy. But yeah, he was huge influence. Like I thought he was one of the cooler bass players in the country, just the way he played, you know, that sound. Definitely. Just, oh, they're tight. Uh, A couple more uh, questions on affliction and then we can uh, move on a little bit. But um, there's a track on there called emotional stain, which uh, at least to my uneducated musical ear, has a distinct Soundgarden influence, both in the vocals and the music. Is that uh, something I'm making up, or was that uh, something you were conscious of? I was not conscious of that. There are times when I felt like I was doing some Seattle Cornell things, but that one was just simply, uh, in my brain, was how do we do some industrial blues? And that's kind of what that song is, you know? Interesting, yeah. Yeah, but um, again, like, when we were in Seattle, there was a lot of um, of influence from those bands, and, and I could have subconsciously definitely picked it up. You know, Chris Cornell, and, and he was, for a while, was with, I think he was married to this manager, Susan Silver, and Susan right, Silver yeah. also managed um, Alice in Chains. Mm-hmm. And at one point, Alice in Chains, Man in a Box, took off big time, especially in Los Angeles on on k-rock and chris was not happy about Mm. the fact that his band and his wife you know was away over in wherever with soundgard or with uh allison chains and soundgarden was kind of sitting still so i remember hearing the story at the time that he cut off all of his hair and put it in a shoebox and sent it to her (laughs) in anger no way (laughs) (laughs) i'm like i don't know how that works dude but I hope she, you know, got the message. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And also the artwork for Affliction is, is uh, you know, even the font with the orange font and that yeah. uh, kind of statuesque, or is it a drawing? Uh, can you take me, take me through the uh, the art process of that record, the art direction? So at the time I was, I was, um, I was seeing a photographer and it's actually me huh. on the cover. Uh, it's a it's a blue filter, and I'm covered with clay makeup on my face. And uh, when you look at the the font, um, that was an EMI thing. But I loved the lowercase and the way that the two things blended together. And then like the, right by the word affliction on the cover of the thing that, that you can yeah, it's just one of my eyes and a nose. And you can see my old nose ring I used to have. Yeah, so it's just me on the cover of that record. That's awesome. I had no idea. It's yeah, I love, yeah. love that. And the orange just pops off the uh, that kind of dark blue and grays and stuff. It's great. Yeah, like nobody was doing that. It was wild. And like uh, when we went to Europe, we went over to Germany and, and did a lot of shows. Um, they took that orange and made the posters bright orange and then put the writing in blue. And it was wild because oh. you'd be walking down Berlin and you'd see a whole wall of just orange Econoline Crush posters, you know? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. How did uh, they took over to Europe to uh, support some acts, or how did that? Uh, yeah, not a lot of Canadian bands get o- get over to Europe on their first full length. Well, we got over there. Um, we got some action from EMI in in Germany. Started a label called Spin, just like the magazine, um, and they wanted to have it as an alternative band um, bands on there. And so we went over, and then we. 
did this thing called, I think, I'm not sure if it was Popcom, because we did that as well, but there was another sort of festival-y thing that EMI put on, and this is what I think got us our break, was that we we were scheduled to do this program. It was an MTV Europe thing. There was two pretty big bands from Germany in front of us. Then we went on, and then the final band of the evening was a band called Disneyland After Dark from, I think, Denmark, I think. And so the and it was at the old record pressing plant in cologne the show and when the thing finally finished and the show went to production and mtv europe put it out it was like the the whole program was probably 30 minutes long and 20 of it was a conline crush and then so we really kind of stole that and that led to us opening for a band called the young gods so we did an Amer- or a European tour with the Young Gods, a great band out of Switzerland, and uh, played Prague, played all these different places. And then we went back again and played another tour with a band called De Krups hmm. and did uh, a, a really extensive tour. So it was great. We, we you know, we got a lot of um, support over there, and but we re- really didn't go back after that. The cost to tour over there you know was was pretty expensive and and we started to take off in canada and then also got the u.s deal and started to play some shows down there let's pick it up there it was the u.s deal was right after affliction in advance of devil you know well no actually it came at, at, at with devil you know we we got a u.s we were on network network usa did a deal where ourselves and 13 engines were signed to network usa but they really didn't do anything it was kind of a it felt like it was kind of just a thing for EMI to get Sarah McLaughlin's catalog or something. <laughs> it was like some dirty deal, but we didn't really end up doing much with them in the States. But when we, um, when we launched uh, the devil, you know, we had started kind of like trying to figure out something to, for the States. What are we going to do? Are we going to come out? And EMI's subsidiaries didn't seem to be too interested. And at that same time, I ended up, you know, cause up until that point, from the end of affliction to basically, you know, starting the the touring for devil, you know, we were self-managed and I, you know, I was doing the management. So we, we interviewed a bunch of managers and Bruce Allen ended up being the one that we went with. And he suggested that we take a look at this little label called restless because it was well-funded. It was uh, funded by Fox uh, you know, Fox Entertainment, Rupert Murdoch, and um, and they were making some headway, and and uh, Joe Regis and Bill Hines were running it, and it was going to be a really cool label. So we should see if we couldn't make some headway with that. And what happened was we actually went for ads. Uh, this guy Bruce Mosier, who was our radio promoter in the states, got us an ad on a Denver radio station, and. It's really unheard of and really unhealthy in some ways for those guys to put some unknown band on their playlist, but they did. <laughs> and uh, and we, I went down and we did some interviews and we did a, a show for them. And um, yeah, it just then Restless was like, we want to sign you because they had huh. tried really, really hard to get one of their bands on that station and couldn't. And they needed to show some success. And we were an unsigned band getting an ad on that station. So they, they grabbed us up and then, you know, ran back to their financiers and said, look at this, we got a band and they're signed and they're exploding. And so it, it, it worked for everybody. And, and it was fun because restless was a, like a 
real family kind of small label even though they had tons of loot they was still operated like an indie so we we knew everybody and like i still to this day talk to half of that staff of that label as friends you know because we just we it was that was that was basically a chunk of our career spent with those guys in and out of every club in america you know thank you so much for joining us today on raven's rule Please support the podcast by visiting patreon.com slash ravedrool. Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to this. And if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more 90s Can Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Until next time, friends, take care.